0: Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 117. This episode sees the return of Mike Boyle. So Mike came on the podcast way back on episode 19 of the show, and that was back in February 2019. Um, So there's been plenty of time between the two episodes, but I'm sure anyone that's heard Mike speak or heard the previous episode knows how much knowledge... Um, he has the experiences that he has and the amount of work and content that he puts out as well so it was great to have Mike on the show I really appreciate him coming back on Anyone that doesn't know um, about Mike's background, Mike's got one of the biggest gyms in America, one of the most popular gyms over in the States, Um, does some amazing work with some top-class athletes from many different sports, but has worked in football as well with the LA Galaxy and worked individually with some um, top professional players as well. So, Mike came on to talk about, I asked him a few different things to start with on periodization because you spoke about periodisation being overrated. So I asked him about that, especially with taking this season into consideration. I asked him about um, what, he, what his thoughts were on possibly some exercises we overuse and some exercises possibly that we underuse as well. So we got his thoughts on that. And then we also discussed um, intent during lifting. And how to create that intent with players so they're not just going through the motions. I then put to him a number of different questions that we had sent in from some of the listeners and, and on social media. So big thank you to everyone that sent in your question. There were some great questions and we tried to get through as many of the questions as possible. So Mike went, went on to tackle some questions on the eccentric work, uh, bilateral, unilateral um, and quad hamstring imbalances as well as many other things as well so i hope you enjoy this episode with mike as always when mike speaks there's loads of great knowledge in this one Um, and big thank you for listening to the episode please do us a massive favor and share this with as many people as possible and then also head over to spotify itunes youtube wherever you watch or listen to the podcast and just make sure you subscribe as well but i will leave you to the episode with mike boyle Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 117, and this episode sees the return of Mr. Mike Boyle. So, Mike, thank you very much for coming back on the podcast. Oh, Thank you. It's
1: a pleasure. I like doing these. Well, I always say once I get them scheduled and, and ready to go, I'm, I'm great. You know, trying to get them all scheduled and everything ready to, to be up and running is the hard part. But the actual talking part's easy.
0: No, it's it's great to have you back on, mate. And it's been it's been a while. I mean, the last one we did was February 2019, and it's safe to say there's been a few things going on in the world in in between last time and this time. So, um, I, what what I wasn't going to get you to do is go through your background because we did that in the previous episode. So, if people want to listen back to that, they can go back to episode 19. I want to make the most of the time we've got together. But just briefly, mate. What's the update over there? What's the um, situation with the business, with um, coaching? How are things looking for you? I mean, we're open. So that's that's the most
1: important thing, in all honesty, the way the last whatever eight months have been. So um, we're open. We're dealing with the restrictions that we have to deal with. We're working with masks on. Everybody's working out with masks on. I mean, it, to be perfectly honest, it's a huge pain in the ass, but it's kind of is what it is in terms of, we have to just keep uh you know we've we've gotten a pretty good uptick going on here right now, and they're trying to figure out what to do. They just closed gyms in Boston, but we are in the suburbs, so we're not closed, but some uh some cities have taken it on themselves to close, even though this the evidence is really um pretty sparse for gyms being spread sites, but that doesn't seem to matter very much to the politicians. And I know you guys have gone through the same bullshit and worse, so it's uh you know kind of. It is what it is, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we just have to sort of play by the rules somewhat, don't we? But I think it's taught a lot of lessons, hasn't it? And we have spoke about on the podcast recently about some of the lessons that people have taken from it. And I was going to go into some questions that some of the listeners have sent in after, but I'm going to throw one at you now because it ties in with this. Um, Andy Bowles, who's a member of our community, actually sent over a question around this. And he just asked, what have you learned, or is there anything you've learned about your athletes during um the circumstances that we face this year i mean what they have
1: learned is that our athletes want to work out i mean they worked out outside they'll they'll show up and i think that's the good thing we've got a really our kind of core group of people are are really good because we're not it's not a team in, in terms of the people that are there want to be there generally speaking so uh they've dealt with just about everything we've thrown at them and they've been very good and they're I think the hardest part, uh, the other thing you learn is that the, the young people are not as concerned about the virus as the politicians are. So we're constantly like, pull your mask up, cover your nose. You know, there's a little more babysitting that goes on. But, but we've structured things with social distance in mind because we have to, because of the way the government, the state government particularly laid out these mandates for us. And said, hey, you know, you've got to be, you know, effectively, we've got to be in like 15 foot by 15 foot square blocks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, five meter by five meter, give or take. And, uh, And so they're not close to each other and we just have to keep them from getting close to each other. It's funny, our professional guys. We'll go through the whole workout, being really compliant, and then we'll all sit down and talk to each other with their masks off. And I'm like, okay, guys, you, you know, you can't like. And some of it, you know, we've talked about this, and I've talked about it on a bunch of podcasts. People will refer to it as coronavirus theater. You know, I said we need to practice coronavirus theater because our regular clients are seeing this, and they're the ones who complain. And we, you know, that's the same thing. You know, we've dealt with complaints from people about, you know, well, there's kids here without masks on, you know, they're not wearing their masks, their noses are sticking, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, you know, all the headaches get worse Mm. in these types of situations, because you have to be customer service oriented when you have a business anyway. And then when you have a business that's really in, you know, in the midst of a crisis, it really forces you to, to practice your customer service at a much higher level, because you can't just say to people, get screwed, get lost. You know, if you don't like it, don't come because those are the people that will go and then complain to some regulatory agency that, you know, I complained about people without masks and they kicked me out and, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, I need you in there and shut them down. So it really, we've learned that our athletes are really good. We've learned that there's definitely people who are petrified, who don't ever want to come back in the gym again, but 80% of our customers have come back. Yeah, which is pretty good.
0: No, that's awesome. That's great to hear, um, Mike. I've got to say, I'm really enjoying the short videos you're putting out on on Instagram. I think they're absolutely top, and the ones in your car and the little little knowledge bombs that you put out there. And I've taken this first topic I've taken from one of those, um, which ties into periodization. And I think I think you know where I'm going to go with this, but I'm trying to try and make it relatable. Um, to the current situation, especially in the UK with the, with the football season that's going on at the moment, like a crazy schedule, um, absolutely loads of games to fit in in such a small amount of time. But you talked about periodization being overrated and um, it's actually something that's come, come up in previous episodes on this podcast as well. So can you elaborate on that and then we'll sort of try and tie it in with the current situation over here and in, in Europe as well with some of the, the leagues? Well, I think what happens
1: is people really. Sorry, I'm going to, I got to keep moving around trying to get comfortable. But um, as strength and conditioning coaches, people love to sort of geek out about periodization and they love to talk about, you know, Verkashansky and about this and about that. And, and, and my only point is that it's so much simpler than that. And the, as you said, the current situation, if you look at um, European football, is the perfect example of why it does not work. It's like, Okay. Off season is one month long and everybody wants to go on vacation. So your preparatory period is zero days. And then you're going to come back and start playing games again for the next 11 months. Figure that one out for me, you know, show me the the periodization, you know, give me your macro cycles and your micro cycles when it's in season is 11 months with, you know, all these crazy games and my best players are going to play more games because they're going to play international games and my best teams are going to play more games because they're going to play Champions League you know what I mean it i always say periodization is like someone hands you the schedule and you go oh, okay um here's in season here are the games i mean it's you know for you to worry about what some russian guy in 1965 thought about how to design a periodization program when it has absolutely freaking nothing to do with your job or what you're doing to me, is as I've said, strength and conditioning's biggest waste of time, and and the more, the further you are away from Olympic sport, the greater the waste of time, periodization is. Because again, like let's see, look at you know European football, right? Oh, uh, you know Ben just got the virus. Okay, we've got a quarantine for two weeks. Oh, you know what I mean? Like, how do you plan for any of this? Except and then people say, oh, you need uh, flexible periodization, agile periodization. I'm like that's just more bullshit layered on top of another layer of bullshit. You know what I mean? It's like, you need to be smart. You need to figure out what's going to happen next. But the idea that we can really plan this out is pretty silly to me. And to see someone, you know, when someone shows me like, oh, this is my 12 month, you know, program, and this is the macro cycle. And we're going to do this here. We're going to do this here. I'm like, really? You know, let me know how that that works out for you. Hmm. Um, And 99% of the people you talk to will be like, oh, yeah, I spent, you know, 40 hours color coding all that in my Excel sheets and doing all that stuff. And, you know, we punted it in week two.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. And that's not to say to not have a plan, isn't it? But it's it's being flexible and adaptable within that plan. And um, one of the previous episodes I did actually was with Tom Little, who's at Preston North End. And he, he used the phrase of managing the microcycle, And it is just a case of that, isn't it? It's constantly trying to adapt to what's going on. Right, exactly. And the problem is, I
1: think we can always come up with, you know, fancy scientific terms for being a good coach, you know, whether that's managing the microcycle or micro dosing or, you know, agile periodization or what you know, but I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, you need to use your common sense. You need to keep your wits about you. You need to realize that, you know, Fergus Conley, when, when I tweeted that out the other day, had a great um, quote and it was something like, you know, very few plants survive first contact with the enemy, you know, and it's and that's the reality you know and it's like the mike tyson quote you know everybody's got a fight plan until somebody punches you in the face (laughs) right i mean all these quotes that make you realize that good coaches see the waste of time young coaches again goes back you know we talked about i talk about dunning kruger all the time too but young coaches are so excited to show you how smart they are and how well read they are that they you know they just publish a lot of (laughs)
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. I was going to uh to, to use the uh vernacular
0: yeah definitely and just to refer to young coaches on that Mike because there might be some listening that are being that are like well do I put a plan in place like um obviously the, you, they need a plan to be set out don't they but it comes with experience on how to amend it and the, all the th- sort of things that are thrown at you as in a in a situation at a club, some that you're not going to be even ready, slightly ready for. I think you absolutely need
1: a plan. I just think if you, you shouldn't waste an inordinate amount of time on the plan. That's, I guess, my, my point about periodization is that, yes, you know, do you just go in and wing it every day? No. Should you know what you want to do during the course of that season? Absolutely. Should you be ready to adapt at a second's notice? Yes. Because I mean, I've been with teams and all of a sudden it's like, oh, we're not lifting today. You know, practice ran long. The coach says, or uh, the manager for, you know, in the soccer world, the manager says, we're not going to, you know, we can't do anything. And then you're like, shit, my, there's my, there goes my workout day. It's gone. You know, what do I do now? Where does, you know, what do I do with my plan? You know, mm-hmm. God, you know, the whole plan's ruined. You, you can't operate under that, you know, as a strength and conditioning coach or a fitness coach or whatever they want to call themselves. You can't operate under that premise. And be effective. So, I mean, like I always say to everybody, you know, I had a one kid, uh, American college. Uh, I think he's a basketball strength and conditioning coach, arguing with me about it. And I said, the school periodizes, periodizes, periodizes everything for you. <laughs> they put a calendar out that says this is a. These are the breaks. These are when kids are off. These are when kids go home. The NCAA further periodizes for you because they tell you how many days a week you can work out and how many hours. And they tell you when the off-season period ends and when, you know, it's like, I feel like everybody's doing your planning for you. All you really got to do is, you know, look at a calendar and say, okay, the kids come back on this date, they leave on this date. The NCAA says we can go eight hours a week for these weeks, and then we can go to 20 hours a week starting on this week. When we get to 20 hours a week, my contact time is going to go from eight to two if I'm lucky. Do you know what I mean? It's all there for you. Uh, so why spend hours and hours of time worrying about
0: it? And we all know anyone working in clubs time. is absolutely precious, isn't it? So I think it's a great, a great point. And I talked about that. Um, I think last time we talked,
1: you know, I had the guys over from Tottenham years ago, probably must've been maybe 18, 17, I forget, but, um, you know, and they were talking about how they work their stuff into their warmups. His time is rushes. and they said, "Oh, you know, we have little plyo warm ups and core warm ups, and and so the players are just seeing, okay, I have warm up before I go out on the field to pitch, whatever. But the coaches are thinking about, okay, I want to microdose these little bits of things that I know I want to get done during the week, and I need to present them as warm ups. But all of these warm ups will be really purposeful. I loved what those guys had done." At Tottenham in terms of being really purposeful about their time usage. And then you're like, hey, and then if I can grab 40 minutes, like I look at it, <clears throat> excuse me, said if I can get 40 minutes a week to lift two 20 minute sessions, I can get quite a bit done mm-hmm. if I do a good job with those quote unquote warm-ups.
0: Yeah, definitely. No, it's a great point. Michael, so you're going to take something else from some content that you put out. And I know this caused um, a lot of people to get in touch with you on social media again, in terms of you put a list out of exercises that you don't recommend um, or don't use in your programming. Now, people can obviously go and check that out on your social media. And I do encourage them to do because obviously you give the rationale behind it. But what I was going to ask in terms of your work with um, footballers in particular, or soccer players, do you think there are any exercises that we possibly overuse um, that we're just in sort of a – we're in the tradition of doing? And then also on the flip side of that, I don't think, are there anything that stands out that you think that we underuse?
1: Well, I think in general, if, you, if you're talking about the sport of football, your football, not our football, um, I think we overuse Nordics. I think Nordics have been sold to us mm-hmm. as um, something maybe – uh, more than what they are. So that everybody's like, Oh, you got to do Nordics. And I'm kind of like, yeah, you don't have got to do me, you know, I think it's a good idea if you can progress to Nordics over time, like I would look at Nordics and think, wow, pretty advanced exercise, I don't think I would do them with beginners. But I might do some, you know, what we might call Nordic ISOs, you know, there might be some things where we're just doing some holds. But so I think, the, you know, the full, if you're talking about the full Nordic and the Nordic lower, whatever you want to call it, I think is overused and overdone. And, and maybe it might cause as many problems as it solves if it's utilized at the wrong time. So that would be the biggest um, overdone one. And then and I would just say any lower body strength exercise when you're talking about football is underdone mm-hmm. because that's still a battle. It, you really struggle, particularly with the male footballer to get those guys to lift with their lower body, to get them to engage in a resistance exercise program, which when you think about injury prevention, the other thing that's probably underutilized based on where we are now, is just sprinting in general. Uh, I, I don't think, um, JB Marin wrote a really good article about sprinting as a vaccine and his, you know, the, the, the thrust of the article and you're smiling cause you've probably read it already, but was just that, uh, a good quality sprinting program, a well-developed sprinting program is probably like vaccinating yourself against hamstring injuries. And he starts, I was on a different podcast last night and I was talking to the first line is something along the lines of uh, elite athletes get hurt running sprints. Hmm. Therefore elite athletes should not run sprints. And, um, and that's how some people have approached it. And what happens in the sport of football is that, Guys get hurt in game because they're not getting the out of game exposure that they need on a regular basis. Like you've got to look at it and think like, okay, you know, if it's sort of like, you know, an apple a day keeps the doctor away kind of thing, you've got to look at it and say, all right, what's my amount of high speed sprinting that I feel my guys need to do in order to be properly vaccinated against these hamstring injuries that they're getting so frequently. While playing. Hmm. And then, and the other thing we talk about is you don't know what sprinting is if you're not timing. So if you're not, if you're going out, you know, when people say, and we used to do this, we used to run sprints. And I would look at it and think that running sprints is just running, it's not running sprints because you don't know, you know, if, if now we've got adopted a very particular program of 10 yard sprinting and we control, you know, to basically we do fly 10s twice a week with our athletes and we build up the fly-in. So we start with about a five yard fly-in, so we run a 15. Three weeks later, we start with a 10 yard fly-in, so we effectively run a 20. Three more weeks later, we run a 15 yard fly-in, so now we're effectively running a 25. And we eventually finish at 30s, but we're always timing the last 10 yards. So we are dosing that medicine in, in a gradually increasing dose to get people to be more resistant. And the, um, the term that comes up, I don't know if you've heard the term Mithridatism, but uh, no. Mithridatism is basically, it comes from, and I may butcher the name, but it was a king. It was like Mithridates was a, uh, a, 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 king somewhere, you know, whatever Greek Roman, it could have been, I have no idea. Some European king, but what he did is he gave himself small doses of poison to develop a, uh, an immunity to being poisoned because he was so fearful that his, his subjects were trying to kill him. And so the term now is mithridatism, which basically is the idea of giving small amounts of the poison as prevention. And that's really what we're doing. When you look at JB's idea of, of sprinting as a vaccine is this idea of, Hey, you know, we know what the mechanism of injury is. We need to, administer a little bit of this and the way gps is now with most teams you could look and say right away okay you know ben has run five sprints over 95 this week in our matches i've won him to do eight sprints over 95 that means ben owes me three
0: mm.
1: you might look at someone else let's just say you might have a back and said you know in two matches he didn't do any sprints over 95 he owes me eight this week. Like I got to get eight out of him because what I'm worried about is the one time, you know, let's just say the 150 50, 50 ball that that guy has to go get. And suddenly he's like, okay, I'm going to access my 100%. And then that guy goes limping off and he goes limping off because even though they are physically capable of that speed, it still can be injurious. So, um, I think you really have to think about high-speed sprinting. And this is the one thing um, I talked to with Tony Haller last night and Chris Corfus is that we need to start to view sprinting as a tool, a training tool, not a test of training. Yeah. Because I think we see it as a test and I don't look at it as a test anymore. I look at it as a tool because one of the things that, and this is what we discussed is that one thing you notice is you never see a sprinter with a bad body. Mm. You know, you don't see a dumpy looking sprinter and go, that guy look he looks like shit but boy can he run fast
0: yeah i was gonna say not a good sprinter
1: anyway (laughs) right no no that's i mean you know never like you go to a track meet and you won't look like wow there's a fat guy over there you know in the in the hundred meter final you know it's amazing Mm. never Mm. now is it you know you know chicken or egg you know what creates what but we do know that sprinting in and of itself seems to cause a lot of really positive physical adaptation
0: yeah definitely. And another thing that you mentioned just before, Mike, about the, the lower body strength training, about any lift sort of being underused, that's obviously, I completely agree. And I think that is something that players specifically are really wary of, aren't, aren't they, in terms of like loading up the lower body. What are your views on that? Like, what's your experience when talking to players?
1: Um, I think, you know, the thing when you're in a sport like football, um, and I always keep saying your football, not our football, but <laughs> we in that sport of football. Um, you have to be a good salesman. And I, as a, for instance, I'll give you a really good example. There was an article about Salah in uh, Sports Illustrated. And in that article, he credits the two guys at Roma with changing his career, um, Darcy Norman and Ed Lippi. And, uh, you know, Darcy's a good friend of mine. Ed was actually one of our first employees at, at Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning. I actually coached his, his twin brother. But... Um, You know, you look at a guy like Salah who credits the program that they put him on with putting him on that path, you know, that now leaves him at Liverpool as probably one of the best players in the world. Right. And you need to find that sort of stuff because then you, you, you need to use that when somebody says, well, I don't want to do this. But if you can show them, hey, look at this article about Salah talking about how, you know, his commitment to the strength and conditioning program and his work with the strength and conditioning coaches caused all this really positive change for him because because you're selling and with selling you need persuasion you need evidence you can't just you know my way of the highway and then you can't sell shit Mm -hmm. you know I I, because I had and I won't name names but I've had you know I've worked with European guys and they come over and all of a sudden their program is like you know trap bar deadlift and back squat and I'm like you know if you're trying to sell something to someone that they don't really want you need to package it up a little bit better than that like I can get that guy to one leg squat I can get him to one leg straight leg deadlift I can get him to do what we call a one leg deadlift or a skater squat because generally speaking soccer players will associate lifting with some meathead asking them to power their back do heavy deadlifts so they have this automatic negative reaction to that yeah. whereas you know, people used to always look at me and like, oh, I really like the functional body weight stuff. And I'm like, great, we'll just do functional body weight stuff. And then we'll add a little resistance to your body weight. Like, you know, once you can one leg squat really good, I'm just going to ask you to put a 10 pound weight fest on. Now, the guy looks at that and he doesn't perceive that to be a big deal. Like, oh, yeah, I can put, that. shit, I'm great at these one leg squat things now. I can put 10 pound weight fest on, no problem. You know, and then next week or two weeks later, you got the 20 pound weight fest out you know what i mean and suddenly so you're getting this guy to do progressive resistance lower body training but you know it's like putting the pill in the peanut butter when you want your dog to take it you know dogs don't take pills very well but they'll lap up peanut butter real easily and so i think that's where a lot of guys fail in, in not just the soccer world in, you know in baseball and a lot of sports yeah. because it just it's like oh, I just want to give you that American football experience. You know, I want you to hand clean and I want you to back squat and I want you to deadlift. And you're like, these guys don't want to do that. Hmm. So you've got to figure out a way to give them something palatable that's also going to be beneficial. And I think that's, you know, because again, in our field, we just got way too many meatheads. We've got way too many weightlifters, way too many powerlifters, Olympic lifters, you know, in there they're trying to masquerade as strength and conditioning coaches, but what they really are doing is they're just administering their program. The one that they do to everybody else. Yeah. And that fails miserably. And then when it fails, it's sort of, um, it, it prejudices the player against all the rest of us. And that's why it's really funny. People like, Oh, you know, you're really functional. You really do a lot of sports specific stuff. And I'm like, No, I really believe strongly in unilateral training and I really believe strongly in not loading your spine. If that makes me very functional and very sports specific, then yeah, you know, put me in that category, you know, I'll check the box for you. But the reality is I just think that that's what common sense dictates. I don't for anybody. I mean, my American football guys would do things in a very similar manner to what my European football guys might do that come over.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, maybe with the notable exception of, you know, if I get a guy who really likes to trap bar deadlift and is strong, I won't tell him he can't do it. If I get a guy who likes to Olympic lift and wants to do it, I'm going to let him do it. But if I get a, you know, a, a, a footballer who's reluctant about lifting weights, I'm not going to give him things that are going to leave a bad taste in his mouth. I'm going to give him things that, you know, and the other thing that I do that I love to do, and it's getting harder for me as I get older, but I love to demonstrate the exercises and be better than these guys. When you get a guy who's really elite. Yeah. Who can't do a one leg squat. And then he looks at this old man doing one leg squats. And he kind of is like, Oh shit, this old guy can do it. I can't do it. Like there must be something <laughs> wrong with me. And I'm like, yeah, there's something wrong. You're weak. No, you're weak. You get crappy balance. And they love to hear that you got crappy balance. And really to me, balance is just single leg strength. Yeah. But yeah. you know, the guys, and then they, they really buy into what you're doing. So I think you could have a program literally of like chin-ups, push-ups, one-leg squats, one-leg straight leg deadlift, skater squat, you know, Nordic isos, you know, not Nordic lowers and and be doing a really good job with footballers and, and never, you know, never do a deadlift, never do any bilateral squat variation. Like, I feel like what I like to do anyway, lends itself much more strongly to a, a reluctant population.
0: Hmm. I think it's it's a great point. Matt. I love the sort of sales side of it because I, I fully agree that coaches have to have that sales techniques, don't we? We have to be able to sell, sell store, sell our philosophy and, and uh, influence the players' programs, essentially. So I think that's amazing. But another thing on that, right? Like, go on, sorry, were you going to say no, no, I was going
1: to say, particularly too at the top level, you have to realize that you are a salesman because- there is not going to be a manager making your top player strength train. That's yeah. not going to happen. Probably on a premier league team, it will be a rare occurrence that you're going to have a manager. Who's going to say, I'm going to side with the strength and conditioning coach over my, you know, 20 million Euro guy. Yeah. And Very that's crazy. the same. Like when I was in major league baseball, it was kind of like, if guys were like, I'm not doing that in major league baseball, he was sort of like, okay, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because yeah. we got to figure out something that you want to do. And so you got to know that. And it's a lot easier at the lower levels, you know, at the academy level, whatever. You can just mandate stuff. You know, it's mm-hmm. like our college program. Hey, here's what we're doing. Yeah. And eventually, if you do a good job at that at your academy level, you should have guys moving up into your first team that are now compliant and understand what they're supposed to do. So um, I think there's a lot to be said for developing those kind of grassroots programs with kids when they're younger
0: and that's obviously where you can use that power of example as well can't you like the Salah, like the ronaldo like these players that
1: i think you can use it even at the elite level because yeah all yeah. yeah. Guys want to be elite everybody wants the one thing i know like with my really talented guys they want to know what the other really talented guys do because in their mind they're competing with those guys you know they mm-hmm. everybody wants to be viewed as one of the best in the world you know i mean who doesn't want to be you know, the, the guy who's vying for the golden boot kind of thing, like, so, but you've got to be able to figure out, you know, it, I always say, it's like fishing. You got to figure out what the bait is and you got to figure out how to get the hook in. And then you got to figure out how to reel the guy in, you know, it's not as simple as, you know, like when you go fishing, you don't go fishing with a club, right? You don't go out <laughs> to, get, you know, somewhere in the ocean and say, I'm going to just club this fish over the head and then drag it out." Oh, it doesn't work that way. No. You got to catch you know, and that's, you know, that's coaching at the elite level, I think is very similar.
0: Yeah, definitely. The other thing I was going to ask on that, Mike, and this is something that I've noticed across football, you see, you go into certain weight rooms and you see certain players uh, lifting and then you go into other weight rooms. And you, there's a distinct difference for me in a lot of them. And it's the intent when they're doing certain exercises. And I don't know what your thoughts are on that and how we can create that intent, whether it's a bigger um culture possibly in the gym but some some weight rooms you go in you like those guys they're putting a lot into that session and some guys are just going through the motions so i don't know what your thoughts are on whether we can create that intent or whether it is a cultural thing um i think you can but i think you have to be
1: careful again you know i don't think it needs to be you know rah rah if you came in and watched our athletes work out the thing that you would notice is that it is very organized and very workmanlike everybody goes about their business. There isn't a lot of like, I wouldn't say there's even a lot of enthusiasm because sometimes I think that enthusiasm is false Mm -hmm. and fake, but everybody's doing their program. Everybody knows what they're supposed to do. Everybody knows how to do it and everybody's doing it. That's the kind of culture that I want. Like, I don't know. I think when someone, when someone walks in, I want them to be like, Hmm, this is a really well-oiled machine. Mm -hmm. everybody's doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. And that is culture. And that is, you know, stuff like, you know, we, you know, we have rules for instance, like, you know, you've got your, uh, your, you know, your ear pods, your headset in, like our athletes aren't allowed to wear, um, any, uh, you know, ear pods or anything when they work out, it's like, you you need to be present. Yeah. And being present means you need to be able to hear me if I talk to you and you can't be like, what, 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 what what do you want? You know? And I'm like, no, that is that shit's not going to work. Like, Mm -hmm. You, you're not, you know, and so culturally that way, you know, making sure that guys are are there and are present, and then culturally making guys comply, um, confronting those people who don't do what they're supposed to do, is really important. And I think that in the professional level, that's the most difficult part because, again, you've really got to be able to to get um, develop a relationship with your manager to be able to walk in and say, okay. This guy's not doing it for me. You know, we're supposed to have a lift today. And he just goes in there and sits around and, you know, basically does nothing does the, the bare, bare minimum. And, you know, do you have a manager who's going to be willing to confront that guy and be like, hey, you know, we're doing, you know, is he going to sell the program for you? When I went to work for the Red Sox, uh, one of the questions the general manager asked me was, what will make this program not succeed? And I said, what will make this program not succeed is you and the manager. And he looked at me like, what? And I'm like, you and the manager. Yeah. I said, if you guys aren't backing, if you guys don't have my back, if I come into you and say, player X doesn't want to work out is, is basically, you know, non-compliant. If you don't do anything about that, then everybody else on our roster is going to realize that, you know, if I get to a certain level, I get to tell people what to do. They don't get to tell me what to do. Yeah. So, I mean, that, and that's culture. But that's a very difficult culture to create. And that's why sometimes when you look at jobs, you've got to really look at a job and say, okay, who am I going to work for? Not as much who am I going to work with, but who am I going to work for? Because we don't call the shots. We're just another another link in the chain, another employee. And if we are with somebody, if we're with a great organization that really supports what you're going to do, then you're going to be successful. You know, If you're in an organization where you know, if your manager looks at you and says, you're going to have to figure out how to get him to do it. You're screwed. Hmm. Told me to basically go F myself. And and he said, he's not doing it. So, you know, this is where I need you to cut to step in and, and let him know that this has to get done.
0: Yeah.
1: And as I said, that gets really hard at the professional and it gets hard at that elite level, because if you've got your best player who doesn't want to train, then you've got it, but then you've got a cultural problem.
0: Hmm. You
1: know, if you look at like, you know, one of the things with, with Klopp, at least based on looking from the outside in, is that he really made guys work. You know, he made work a part of that culture in Liverpool. And as a result, you know, guys, you know, you you buy in or you don't. It was like if you know, if you don't buy in, then I'll get somebody else.
0: Yeah. yeah. And
1: that's not most people, and this is what I realized is that that the great coaches, the great managers are maybe willing to lose in order to win. They're willing to do some things, some difficult things in order to create the culture that you really need to be a true winner. Um, We had at Boston University, most of what I did was ice hockey. And our ice hockey coach was a guy named Jack Parker, who uh, I want to say he was early seven, when he retired, but he was winning his coach at one school in one sport in the history of the NCAA he won 896 games or something like that, all at Boston university. And, um, you know, we were in, you know, we won three national championships. We probably were in, I don't even know how many we could have been in 15 or 18 final fours, um, over the years, but he was one of those guys like, you know, here's what we're going to do. And everybody's going to do it. And, you know, I used to always look at when guys would give me a hard time. I'd be like, go upstairs, talk to coach, tell him, go, go tell him you am not going to do it. Yeah. No one ever took the walk. Not one kid ever went up the stairs mm. to, to say, you know, they just kind of looked at me and they looked and they were like, oh, whatever. I'll do it. What, what I do I got to do? Because they knew what his stance was. And his stance was that, you know, we've got a, we've got a program and we believe in what we're doing and you better, you better also, or you're in yeah. trouble.
0: I hope you're enjoying the episode with Mike so far. I just wanted to give a very quick update on some of our community um, updates and things that we've uploaded. So for anyone that doesn't know, we've got an online platform that hosts a number of different webinars, presentations, and we also have a a forum on there so you can um, speak with other coaches. And we've just announced that we've um, linked up with Pulse Roll to supply a discount for our members. You can go and get a 20% discount. With Pulse Roll, um, the code to use is on the, the online community. And we've also just uploaded a brand new webinar um, based around small-sided games. So that is from and Mason. So a big thank you to him for for giving the webinar. Um, I'm looking forward to the members going to watch that. So there's loads of other content on there. We've had all of our our recent webinars from Dr. Laura Bowen, uh, Oliver Morgan, Colin Lewin, Nick Grantham, plus many others. They're all available to watch back on demand on the community. If you want to go and check it out, you can get a free month on the community just go to footballfitfed.com and click the community tab at the top go through the whole sign up um, sign up process there that will give you one month free on the community and after that, it is only £4.99 per month going forward and we've got plenty other webinars to come and as soon as we get back into our network meetings the presentations from those meetings will also be available on the community as well so if you're already a member, make sure to log in and check out the new webinar. If you're not already a member, go to footballfitfed.com and click the community tab and sign up there. In part two, I put some um, of the listeners' questions to Mike, so I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, oh, awesome. Mike, I'm going to try and go through some of the questions that have been sent in um, as well. Um So some of these are obviously sent on social media. So I'm going to try and expand on them a little bit because some of them come in quite short. But the first one, someone's asked about implementing eccentric work in season. Um, So I don't know what your thoughts are on that. And uh, you can obviously take that where you want.
1: If we're talking about, I would do very, very little eccentric work in season. I think eccentric, generally speaking, produces more soreness. And guys, the one thing that they do not want to be from a workout is sore. So like for me, I'm super conscious even of changing exercises because when you think of the things that cause soreness, eccentrics cause soreness, drastic change causes soreness. So I'm going to, you know, like I said, if we're, you know, thinking about whatever periodization, controlling volume, you know, everything's going to be super gradual so that we don't ever get guys sore because if you want to lose your room, Hmm. make everybody sore from the workout. So uh, I just, and the bad part is like I said, if you're in the premiership, shit, you may not have any time to do eccentric type stuff, mm-hmm. but you may be able to introduce some, like some three second lowers, but knowing that, okay, I've really reduced my load here. If I'm gonna introduce even some kind of some relatively short eccentrics, but uh, I in general would shy away from that because of the soreness factor.
0: Yeah. Cool. And then the next one, um, they've asked about bilateral unilateral you know, work in preseason. Now I'm guessing what they mean by that is how they'd structure it. So would would you go and obviously you spoke a lot about bilateral unilateral you know, work, but I'm guessing it is sort of maybe a structure whether you go with one or the other or a blend of the two in a yeah, preseason no longer, period.
1: So if I'm a if I'm a strength and conditioning coach for a football team and I'm in Europe, I'm not doing it. I I think I would be probably I might be zero bilateral.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I might be doing light trap bar deadlifts with guys maybe depending on you know what my sort of compliance scenario looks like from a player standpoint if I you know maybe if I've got a really good culture and I've got guys that like to lift I might trap bar deadlift but we would I would be I think there's enough really good unilateral options particularly in a sport like your football where I don't see any rationale for the bilateral stuff at all so I just would be like no don't even do it. Players would be happier and everything would run smooth.
0: And then with that as well, um, would there be a difference from preseason to in-season or would you have the same sort of views you know, on that?
1: Same sort of views. So, you know, I, I wouldn't, I mean, I just do it the, you know, the exception, again, academy kids are going to learn bilateral stuff. Academy kids are going to learn the basics. So if I'm putting my academy program together, you know, they're all going to goblet the squat, they're all going to trap bar deadlift. They're all going to learn the basic bilateral exercises. I always liken it to, it's like, you know, learning to read and to write, to do arithmetic when you go to school, like you'll learn the basics. But, you know, if I'm starting with the top team, uh, I might be at pro bilateral exercise with them. And in-season, I mean, I might introduce in-season, it might look like the old hit programs, you know, high intensity exercise, one set. Uh, you know, I would have no problem with starting out with guys and saying, okay you know, we're going to do one set of six, you know, like a one by 20 kind of idea. If mm. you've ever read any of the yes one by 20 stuff. But mm. if you look at that one by 20, but it might literally be one by six, I might say, okay, 10 exercises, one set of six, you know, give me six push ups, give me six ups, give me six, one leg squats on each leg, give me six, one leg straight leg deadlifts on each leg. And then I try to gradually increase those loads over time, but really keep the volume, you know, I would be working much more on the intensity side and I would do very little in the area of volume because again, you know, we don't want soreness in general, we don't really want hypertrophy. Most of these guys aren't trying to get bigger. Hmm. And and what you're trying to do again, it's that, you know, it's that pill in the peanut butter kind of idea. If I can give guys something to do where they think, oh, that didn't suck. That wasn't so bad. You know, I'll go back next time and that'll be okay. Yeah. You know, it might be okay. Now we're going to do one set of eight. You know, and then next week we're going to do one set of 10. So I'm incorporating my progressive resistance component. I'm increasing the total volume of work done. But I'm doing it in a way that's almost invisible to the player. And I did this with one of my, I had a really good picture of this kid, Andrew Miller, who ended up becoming an all-star in uh, after the Red Sox. And I was, you know, six foot seven, really lanky, didn't really like lifting. And I'd just be like, okay, let's just, you know, you know, let's just do these three lower body exercises. We'll do two sets. You know, we'll use a 16 kilo kettlebell. And he was kind of like, oh, that's easy. Hmm. I just did that, you know, whatever, 8, 10, 12 reps. And then I was like, oh, let's, you know, by next month, I'm like, grab the 20. Hmm. And he was kind of like, okay, yeah, grab the 20, no big deal. But over the course of the season, he was significantly stronger at the end of the season than he was at the beginning. And he had probably, he wouldn't look at me and say, if I said, you know, Andrew, how many hard workouts were there? He would probably say none. Yeah. But you know, if I showed him the numbers and said, "Well, do you realize that you started with a 16 kilo kettlebell for eight reps? You know, when we started doing these exercises, and you finished at, you know, 24 kilos for 10 over the course of the season? I mean, that's a really big increase in you know in in total volume mm-hmm. for this guy, but it's done in a way that was uh, really easy, really easy to swallow.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Um, the next one, Mike. Another short one, but addressing quad hamstring imbalances. I think that quad hamstring imbalance is total bullshit, anyway. Like, if any,
1: the only way you can know quad hamstring imbalance is if you're doing isokinetic uh, single joint testing, mm. which I think is a total freaking waste of time. If you're doing isokinetic single joint testing, you're like twenty years behind the times, anyway. So, um, it's not going to make any difference. So, I would, I would not. I don't ever even think about that. There's never a thought that enters my mind. Now addressing knee dominant exercise to hip dominant exercise Hmm. enters my mind. I want to make sure that I have at least as much hip dominant exercise in my as I do knee dominant exercise, but I would not be, you know, I look at like quad ratio and I feel like that's like a, you know, I was an athletic trainer in 1981 and two, and we were worried about quad hamstring ratios. Uh, since 1982, I don't know if I've worried about it at all. Yeah. So, but I would not consider that to be even, you know, a concern.
0: Cool. And then the next one, um, proper question: Do you think general strength training can be useful for team sports, even if the stimulus is non-specific to the discipline practice?
1: I would have to say yes, because I, it, what I'm, what I think he's saying is. You know, can a general strength program help a soccer player, a football player? Yes, absolutely. I think a general strength training program helps to everyone if it is a well-designed general strength program. I think that's what we need to look at is um, what would our, um, uh, you know, what would our description of a well-designed general strength program be? And so, I mean, it is very rare that somebody getting stronger and as I said, particularly in unilateral lower body exercises that require co-contraction. So, you know, thinking one leg squat, skater squat, you know, one leg straight leg deadlift, things like that. It would be extremely rare that that would not be beneficial minimally from an injury prevention standpoint. And then I think from a, you know, there's a million other reasons, but, you know, speed development, there are things that um, are all going to, to benefit from that. So I, I would say unequivocally yes
0: yeah which we we have sort of covered anyway haven't we in terms of the the benefits and like you said that it's i suppose it's determining exactly what they mean by general strength that's that's the main part of that question isn't it
1: exactly and that's i mean i think what you'd have to look at is you know what's your idea of a general strength program versus what's mine like my idea of a general strength program might be that sort of push up chin up one leg squat one leg straight leg deadlift kind of program that I described that would be a good you know if someone else was talking about you know chest press leg press lat pull down or you know I'd be like yeah that's a crock a bunch of shit that you know you're wasting guys time with so um you know it's it depends on exactly on how you define it
0: yeah cool and then if we have you got time for one more mike um oh yeah i got i got 15 minutes
1: we said oh. till 9 so plenty
0: Awesome. Well,
1: I'm also trying to get somebody's text. Yeah, I, I Facetimed, so we had the foot of snow, and I was outside, fumbling with my phone, trying to get a flashlight in the dark to start my snowblower. Yeah, in the process of doing that, my phone was like malfunctioning. I Facetimed one of my friends at six o'clock in the morning, and so I'm just getting a message right now. I think wondering why I have this Facetime call.
0: So you're sending out apologies.
1: Yes, exactly. What I'm, uh, I'm apologising to you while I'm apologising. to you. <laughs> I'll probably be two or three more in.
0: Yeah, no problem. Well, um, the next one was about um, if you if you have any sort of protocols or like matrix for single leg work. So, is there any sort of progressions that you'd work through? I know it'll probably depend on the individual athlete, but is there anywhere that you'd start people and then sort of aim to end up in terms of movements?
1: Yeah, I mean, we always we generally we'll start teaching everybody to split squat and we generally will start teaching everybody what we would call a reaching one leg, straight leg deadlift. So, you know, reaching one leg, straight leg deadlift, you know, just to get the mechanics, we're asking them to sort of reach for a cone versus reach down towards, towards their foot. And so for us, I mean, we really have progressions for everything. And again, you know, if I was starting with a, a football team, I'd start at what we would call like level one stuff, the simplest, of the things that we're going to do. And then I'd figure out, you know, again, you know, is it Academy kids? And are we going to start with body weight because they're, you know, 11 years old or is it, is it the first team? And we can start with, you know, a 12 kilo kettlebell. that will be light enough, but will still present some level of progressive resistance. And, um, you know, we just start, I mean, that's where we would begin. And again, teaching, making sure, can a guy do a pushup? Can a guy do a correct chin up? you know, really simple stuff that um, some people might look at our beginner program and be like, oh, it's like a bodyweight calisthenic workout. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, like call what you want. But it's not a bodyweight calisthenic workout because we're going to load it.
0: You know, yeah. we're going to
1: have dip belts and weight vests. And, you know, if you can do pushups, well, I'm going to elevate your feet. If you can do feet elevated pushups, I'm going to put a plate on your back. If you can do 10 chin-ups, I'm going to get you with a dip belt and we're going to do weighted chin-ups. You know, if you can one leg squat, with five pound weights in each hand, I'm going to put a weight vest on you. I'm going to engage and training with you in a way, as we've talked about through this whole thing in a palatable way, in a way that's going to be acceptable to you, both psychologically and physiologically. And the truth is I've never had a guy not buy in guy or male, male or female because I've probably trained more good female soccer players than I've trained good male soccer players actually. And in both cases, the females are much more compliant because they're worried about the ACL injury. So it's easier. You've got an extra selling point for them because you can say, Oh, this is our ACL prevention program. And suddenly everyone, everybody's on board with that. You know, no one wants to tear their ACL. And so, you know, I'd still be selling that, you know, when I'm selling one leg squats and all those things to my, even, you know, at the premier league level, I'm selling injury prevention all the time. You know, we're trying to prevent hamstring pulls. We're trying to prevent ACLs. We're trying to prevent, you know, all these things that we're doing, that you know, that are going to be problematic.
0: That language is so key and very relatable to coaches, isn't it? Coaches
1: like to hear that. Oh, exactly. Well, it's the same. Well, it's no different because you're selling your coaches and your managers too. Yeah. And, you know, if you want to sell them, you know, if you want to sell upper management, you sell the dollar value of injury prevention. Because, you know, I, I forget, I saw the stat, you know, that it was something, you know, 50 million or 250 million euros or something spent on injured players, you know, paying injured players in in the premier league. I mean, it's a, it's an outrageous amount of money that's being spent. So when you're talking, you know, organizationally, you want to look at that, the savings factor, Hey, if we can do a really good job with this, we're going to save a ton of money. We're going to keep, you know, our best players playing makes the most fiscal sense for the organization. Mm -hmm. when you're selling the manager you're selling injury prevention because our best players playing leads us to potentially more wins right when you're selling it to the players it's the same idea but different if you're healthy and you're playing you're making more money because you know again for the elite level professional guy it's like you know you get some guys who are looking and thinking hey now all i want to do i want to get the next contract yeah that's because the next one's the big one and so you know you've got to be looking at everybody and thinking what's my sales gimmick for this person? What gets this person to buy in? And that's why I always think, I think that's what I'm better at than most people. Hmm. I'm better at looking at someone and saying, I know what's going to make this um, sales pitch work for this person. And if you, you know, if you're selling the wrong thing to the wrong guy, then it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. You know, you know, the players are self-interested. They want to play longer and make more money. You know, managers are are wins and loss driven. They want to win more games so they don't get canned because uh, you know, obviously sacked, right? Mm. Sacked is your word. You know, they, uh, um, you know, the, the the managers are sacked regularly in that Premier League. You know, they, yeah. they come and go pretty rapidly. And then if I'm a general manager, what do I want? Well, you know, I want to I want to make money. I want to be profitable for my owner right so you have got to be able to look at all these different people and say well you know what's this guy's motivation and how do i tap into his motivation to get me what i want yeah. speaking the language of the different job roles isn't it like yeah and speaking the language i would say language of the sport you know that's one of yeah. I you know it's easy for you guys because everybody you know football is your game so everybody speaks the language but if you bring an american over and now like the big trend in the u.s is bringing australian and uh and uk guys over to be strength and conditioning coaches in america Mm. and it doesn't usually work out well because they don't speak the language they don't understand the sport you know if you come from you know aussie rules football or rugby or whatever it is and suddenly you find yourself in the national hockey league that's a very different world yeah with a whole different language and a whole different culture and you've got to i mean you may be great at your job but adapting to that role in that culture is really difficult
0: yeah something when we we touched on that didn't we in the previous episode that we did about um sort of sport specific but we delved into that on in terms of like knowing the sport um but on the flip side of that as well which we also touched on in the previous episode was getting eyes that aren't involved day to day on the sport on your practice as well we I think we touched on that like the benefits of that of someone that maybe is applying principles over getting involved in the politics side of football or cultures that are in that sport and just to say what about trying this yeah and that's
1: what I mean sometimes it really helps to have somebody outside your culture yeah to show up but they still need to understand the culture they need to to not make absurd suggestions things that mm. you think oh my god no like that would never work so it is it's um it's important to have a really to have both a, a broad, knowledge generally and then a specific knowledge of the sport
0: yeah because
1: you look at me I can sit here and talk to you about the sport of football and the reality is that's not if you ask me you know that might be fifth or sixth on my list of areas where I've spent time you know of areas where I might consider myself to be you know relatively well versed but I would tell you that like you know ice hockey and American football and you know basketball and baseball there's a lot of American centric sports where i'd be more comfortable than the sport of football but you go to europe there's one sport mm. Mm. <laughs> you know really that i mean everywhere never mind europe you know you get out of the united states
0: yeah, yeah and the
1: rest of the world is football centric and i mean that's just the way that it is you know european basketball is getting better but it's you know if you looked at like you know whatever dollars invested or you know Eyeballs on games. You know, you're probably at you know ten percent. Mm. And every we talk about this fact. Everybody in the world has a Premier League team that they root for. Yeah, everybody. Yeah. You know, they Man. could be in Russia. They could be in China. No matter where they are, they have a Premier League team that they identify with. Mm. And that's um, you know, it's it's pretty unknown to us. Maybe the NFL has a little bit of that cachet worldwide. But as an, Americans don't really understand the soccer culture, hmm. they haven't spent time studying it and realizing that it's, um, you know, I mean, the, the highest paid athletes in the world are European soccer players.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, more than, the, you know, the highest baseball player, more than the highest American football player, you, you know. And, and if you ask, you know, some Americans to name, you know, the top 10 footballers in the world,
0: they wouldn't be able to get three yeah yeah amazing um mike i was just going to blend in i was just going to go for one more question and it can be a quick one if you want but we got sent in as well any of your lessons from the other sports you've worked in um that can relate to working in football and dave Tenney actually spoke about this about lessons from the his lessons from the nba and i'd be intrigued to hear your views if there's anything that you could sort of take from the other sports you've worked in to apply to football um
1: Yeah, I think the biggest lesson would be, like, uh, baseball is that when you see a sport where they play 160 games in, say, 180 days or 175 days, you learn a lot about what people really are going to be capable of doing. Because, uh, you know, one of the things, you know, people always ask about, like, lifting on game day as a, for instance, in baseball, you always lift on a game day. Every lift is on a game day because if mm-hmm. there is an actual day off of which there are about 10 during the entire baseball season, players do not want to see you. They don't want to be anywhere near. The ball. Yeah. And so suddenly you realize, you know, that the guys are capable of much more than you think they are. And so I think that makes it easier, not necessarily say to make your soccer player lift on game day but realizing that, you know, whatever day before game, you know, we get so worried about recovery. Everybody's all, what about recovery? What about recovery? I'm like, recovery, like, you know, don't overemphasize the recovery aspect here and realize that in general, making sure you have the right amount of work is probably going to be more important than the right amount of rest. Mm. Um, particularly when it comes to sort of in-season strength training. And one of the things I always used to talk about is the fact that we never cancel workouts. Like if I'm working for a good coach, you know, when I was at Boston University with hockey, we never canceled the lift ever. Mm. And our coach got to the point where he'd cancel practice. Yeah, the guys lift. He'd look at me and be like, because he'd, he'd say, oh, I don't want to give the guys a day off today." And I'm like, "It's a lift day. I don't want them to not, not to miss a lift." And after a while, he knew with me, he'd be like, "I don't want the guys to go on the ice today." Mm-hmm. Like, fine, we'll just lift. You know, we'll warm up. We'll lift. We'll be out of here. We'll be in and out in an hour. Yeah. He's like, I don't want the guys to have to put all this stuff on and go out on the field and uh, go out in the ice rather and do all that. And I'm like, fine, but we're not, I don't want to miss a lift because if you miss a lift, that's the other thing. When you lift once a week, you get sore and hmm. ask anybody, right? Yeah. If you lift twice a week, you never sore. If you lift once a week, you're sore. So I always want it to be twice a week. I never want to miss a day. Even, you know, and that day could be like the most micro of micro doses. Like I said, that, you know, 10 exercises, one set of six but we're going to go in and touch all those patterns on that day so that that guy does not come back to me seven days later. Like, you know, I hate you, man. My hamstrings are sore. My quads are sore. Like, cause again, there's nothing that guys that makes a guy feel injury prone, like being sore. Yeah. I don't know if there's any relationship at all, all, really, but when you get a guy who's thinking I'm already going out to the pitch and before I go out, I'm sore. Yeah, that is an absolute prescription for psychological disaster. And then if something does go wrong, it will 100 percent be your fault, whether mm. it was or not, because that's the other thing in strength and conditioning. I always tell everybody: shit flows downhill. Yeah, and the strength coach is at the bottom, which means when you make a mistake, even if you don't make a mistake, you will get blamed for it. You know, if you do a little bit too much running. And a guy pulls a hamstring in the next game; it's because you did too much running. So you've always got to be realizing that you're um, you're eligible to be blamed for whatever's going to go wrong, whether it's your fault or not. Yeah, and you've got to operate that way.
0: Yeah, Mike, absolutely amazing! It is every time we jump on one of these. So I really appreciate your time, mate. I won't take any any more of your time up. Um, thank you very much for coming back on
1: no thank you very much for having me like i said you, you do a great job and this is really good for me to to kind of keep myself relevant with, with my european audience
0: <laughs> no you're uh, welcome anytime and we'll hopefully get another one in the future so thank you very thank much, much and take care all right, all right thanks, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna click leave and i'm gonna go eat breakfast <laughs> see ya all right thanks thank you to mike for coming on the podcast i really appreciate him giving up his time i know he's super busy with everything going on um i'm sure many of you are already following him on social media but i do advise you to if you're not already he's at mboiled1959 on twitter and he's at michael underscore 1959 on instagram and he puts i think i mentioned it in the episode he put some great little videos out on instagram chatting about different subjects so go and check those out because um, there's some awesome knowledge bombs that you pick up from the videos that he puts out. Takeaways from this one, um, there's loads again from this episode but I think where he talked about um, JB's work on sprinting as a vaccine um, was really interesting. The chat around periodisation, so we talked about it being time wasted and obviously that is very, we have to take that into context because obviously he's not saying to not plan. To not periodised, but sometimes we can spend too long on things that are going to change anyway, and I think we can definitely re- relate that to this year. His um, views on Nordics, possibly being an overused exercise, and I think we, we get caught up in some of these trends sometimes, don't we? And I think we've just got to... It's not to say not to use them by any means, because I know there's some great research out there on Nordics, but many other hamstring uh, exercises are available, and it's we do have to sort of question and analyse um, when we're using them, why we're using them. Um, he talked about eccentrics, not in season, not using eccentrics in season. And also the fact that any lower body um, exercise in football is generally underdone um, or underused. So that's an interesting thought around how much we are. Um, doing lower body strength work with our players. But obviously, again, we have to take into, const- into context the, the season, especially this year, with all the games and fixtures that we have. And then the just the final thing was where we spoke about having a supportive head coach. And I spoke about this when I did the webinar for the online community with the takeaways from the first 100 episodes, is that... A lot of previous guests have spoke about having that environment where they're supported and they have a supportive manager or head coach, and it allowed them to sort of thrive in that environment. I know some will experience that, some won't, um, but it's a really important thing, isn't it, to have the right environment for us to be able to thrive and, and do the best at what we do. So there were my takeaways. There was plenty more from the episode with Mike, but I hope you enjoyed it. Um, it's always great to speak to him, and I love his content. I love the way he speaks about different things. So it's great to have him back on the uh, back on the podcast. And please reach out if you've got any guest recommendations. Please let me know who you want to hear on the podcast, because I'm in the process of just confirming the next few episodes, and obviously going into 2021 as well. So it would be great to hear from you guys who you want to hear on the show. Big thank you for your support as always in listening and sharing the episode. And I will speak to you again in episode 118.